If we hold certain values to be true, if we have certain beliefs in how we do business and certain behaviours that come from those beliefs, how can we make the artificial intelligence reflect those values? I would guess that at the moment it's being treated as, a, as an IT thing um, and managed by an IT team under an IT director and that may be separate from um, the people director who's responsible for culture or the brand director who's responsible for brand strategy. These tend, especially in larger businesses, these tend to be managed um, rather in isolation. And what I'm always trying to do is connect those teams up so that we get a more consistent experience. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. Over recent weeks, we've seen the rapid rise of ChatGPT and Google are launching their own BARD version of AI bots. Uh, we are told that uh, this AI software can write emails for us, write books for us, uh, that the uh, British television show The Last Leg had uh, ChatGPT or an AI bot write a joke for them. Uh, wasn't very funny, to be honest with you. But now the conversation is, is AI going to replace human beings? Uh, you know, I, I'm in the middle of writing my new book. I keep thinking to myself, maybe I should just type this into ChatGPT and see what it comes up with. So it seemed like something that would be worth uh, talking about. And, and as a Connected Leadership podcast, I thought that rather than just talk purely about the impact of AI, uh, I'd like to tie into a theme about how human our communication is as organizations. Um, and do we, do we have enough of a real human connection with our customers and with, uh, with, with key stakeholders, both within and outside an organization, particularly as organizations grow? And the guest that I've invited along to discuss this is someone who really specializes in this. He's a former brand strategist for the British chemist uh, chain Boots. And he, uh, about 20 years ago, worked to help them bring in their tone of voice, just as that concept started to emerge. And since 2004, he's worked with leading companies to help them improve their culture, build their brands and help them to express themselves. So I'm hoping he is going to express himself succinctly entertainingly and most certainly with humanity on today's Connected Leadership podcast. So thank you very much for joining me, Ben Afia. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andy. I'm going to be as human as humanly possible. Well, that would be a, a great start when we're talking about making organizations human. It's good. We haven't quite got to the point where I've got an AI bot as a guest on the podcast yet. Not quite sure I'm going to let, uh, let that through my filters for some time to come. I think you should try it. <laughs> so the conversation i don't want our conversation to be all about ai but uh i, I obviously with everything that i've i've uh, referred to that's happened in really recent months it, it's it, the conversation has only been um front front and center for a matter of weeks um so so i think that this is as i said in the introduction a broader topic but let's start with ai how do you how do you see 
bots like ChatGBT and Google's Bard impacting the way brands communicate? Are you seeing anything happening in the, yet in these very early stages, uh, or is it something that you're really looking down the line? I think it's early days, but clearly at the moment, at the time we're recording, there's a lot of fuss about it. So ChatGPT3 came out in November, I think. Um, they got the number of subscribers in within two days that Facebook got within two years, something like that. I mean, absolutely enormous growth. So it's quite remarkable. But I have been looking at uh, artificial intelligence for a long time because as somebody involved in in branding, in language in particular, and writing, and how we communicate. Um, I've been worried about how soon AI is going to take my job. So I've been keeping my eye on the market. I spoke at a conference for a company called Acrolinks about four years ago in Sweden. Um, I was keen to sort of get to know them and understand how they're applying uh, artificial intelligence to uh, content. And they, in particular, do uh, huge quantities of kind of translations. So for example, for companies like Volvo who have to translate car manuals or digger manuals and documentation into every language in, in the world, they do that kind of volume of work. Uh, but what I learned at the time, and it'll be interesting to see how that's changed now, was it didn't really feel like that language was particularly human. So the, the intelligence was uh, capable um, it was doing an effective job. It was relieving pressure on humans. It was an adjunct to humans doing their jobs. Uh, but it's only really now that we're starting to see it come through in a way that I think is more human. So I've been playing with ChatGPT, as many have the last couple of months. And I'm thinking, okay, what what can I use it for in my business? How can, I, how can it help my clients? Um, one thing that's been interesting is how it can summarize meeting notes and... Uh, in in my work, I do a lot of interviewing, um, partly taking briefs from clients, but also interviewing people, executive teams, and people throughout organisations. So, can ChatGPT, can artificial intelligence help me to summarise and bring the data together from those interviews? And I think that's quite an exciting space. But the other that is a more direct application, um, there's maybe a surprise for some, is to marketing now. I think we thought that artificial intelligence would be coming for the kind of the lower level jobs initially and that the creative jobs might be longer protected. And actually, it seems like it's going to be the opposite. It's coming for our creativity. So how are people using it now? They're using ChatGPT as prompts uh, to generate ideas for headlines, for uh, writing the first draft of a landing page of sales copy, of uh, email copy, newsletters, that kind of thing. Um, I would say it's quite cliched. So the writing that I've managed to get out of it is fairly standard stuff. And I guess that's probably because it's looking to a database currently that was fed into the system in September 2021. So it's not current data. Um, it's a little bit out of date. But it is still quite extraordinary what it can do. And... Uh, a colleague actually put uh, my website through ChatGPT and asked it to write an article about it, and it was spookily accurate. I mean, it was really quite astonishing what it managed to do. So it's very exciting, but it is still early days. It's not writing I would send to a client or want be confident putting on my website, and I certainly wouldn't use it for writing anything, you know, writing strategy for my my clients. But I think it's a an assistant. There's there's a lot to unpack there, and. Um... 
obviously there is the whole conversation about who AI is going to impact and how it's going to impact different roles. For the purposes of this conversation, I want to pick up on something you said, um, because you said you've been looking at these various sites in terms of how they can help your clients. Now, our conversation today is about whether AI and just generally, you know, how we make our organizations human and whether there is a threat uh, to that, that human connection. When organizations are looking at using sites like ChatGPT, do you think that they're one of the challenges is they might not be coming from the same perspective as you, that they may be thinking about how is this going to make our lives more easy, uh, easier rather than how is it going to make our clients lives easier or serve our clients better yeah i do think there's a risk there um so i've been um scanning twitter and seeing lots of sort of marketing speakers consultants getting very excited about what chat gpt can do for you um but as i sort of said briefly um i don't think it sounds very human yet so there's something about um a generic experience that we get from a company that makes us feel pretty fed up. Uh, what do I mean by that? I think it, it's when it, when we don't feel like we're treat, being treated by a human, like a human being as an individual, we can sense it. And that tends to happen with businesses that are quite hidebound with systems and processes. So larger businesses, larger, older corporates who have very defined processes often the handoffs between teams can be um, quite abstracted and we feel like we're being passed from pillar to post. And that is quite an inhuman experience when actually what we really want is for one person to take ownership and solve our problem. So the risk with artificial intelligence and the generic nature of the output so far is that I think it risks us feeling disenfranchised, disconnected and not connected as humans and so i don't think it's fit for human consumption just yet but we are where we are now and what we know about it is that artificial intelligence learns incredibly quickly i heard a story about um i think when um artificial intelligence beat gary kasparov the chess master um i think that they had fed in uh, the rules of the game, then the artificial intelligence played itself for about four hours and was then able to beat the world's leading chess master. So it's something that learns incredibly quickly. And that's the thing that's quite extraordinary. So I think that more human output is likely to come fairly quickly. Now, one thing that makes us human is empathy. And so the question for me is, can artificial intelligence actually have empathy for human emotions? And if we think about us Brits, for example, who might complain in a very passive way, we could say, well, that's a bit disappointing, when actually we mean that we're really bloody fed up. So uh, I was working with Vodafone, actually, in their Indian contact centers who support British customers one of the cultural problems that they had was understanding when we're, when we're making a complaint and misinterpreting our, our gentleness and, and lack of directness sometimes. So it'll be very interesting. If we now think about, you know, there's, there's talk of AI being able to diagnose illness better than surgeons, better than consultants. 
And that's extraordinary. And I guess that's about pattern matching. Um, there is a risk of bias. There was an article I read this weekend about using artificial intelligence to detect crime or possible crime. Um, that has been tried in states in the US and there was a, there's a risk of then targeting um, particular minority groups um, because of the data that's fed into the system. So it's quite a complex picture, um, but there's a lot to play for and I think it's quite exciting. So, so going back to this point about you, you're looking at how using artificial intelligence can serve your clients, uh, and and my um, suggestion is that if companies are coming from the other way around, how can we use it to serve ourselves? It's actually the data input that causes the loss, the lack of humanity and interaction. So you use the example of companies that are very process driven, tend to. Uh, leave a much less human or positive in, environment or, or, or experience for the user. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, my, my, my suggestion here is it's not all about AI. The, when we're looking at creating a human connection, maybe forget about AI. We have to look at how we, we, we create our systems and processes and how they're experienced by the user. Are too many companies coming from what makes life easier for themselves rather than what's going to enhance the client experience? I think that's the risk. Um, I mean, a lot's going to depend on the data that's fed in and how you manage it, how you train your AI. Um, so it depends on the question, you know, the data that you put in and the questions that you pose and the way that you frame those questions. And that's going to be individual for individual companies. So from my perspective, what I'm thinking about in terms of culture and branding within an organization, I'm thinking about values and behaviors. So if we hold certain values to be true, if we have certain beliefs in how we do business and certain behaviors that come from those beliefs, how can we make the artificial intelligence reflect those values? I would guess that at the moment it's being treated as, a, as an IT thing um, and managed by an IT team under an IT director. And that may be separate from um, the people director who's responsible for culture or the brand director who's responsible for brand strategy. These tend, especially in larger businesses, these tend to be managed um, rather in isolation. And what I'm always trying to do is connect those teams up so that we get a more consistent experience. So it's about the training. Um, but it's also, I think, about the questions that we ask and what we're trying to get it to do for us. So if I think of an example, so I do, as I mentioned at the start, I do a lot of interviewing and I have a lot of meetings. And one of the things that I've always struggled with in my career is, is writing up meeting notes, which is always a good discipline to kind of repeat back what you've heard from a meeting. And that helps you, the person that you've spoken to feel that you've heard them. Uh, it's a good discipline, but when you're busy, it's quite hard to do. Well, so I tried that with some notes from a client meeting just recently, and it turned the notes into a good summary and then into an email. And I phrased the question three times. And on the third attempt, the email was pretty good. So something that would have taken me an hour to think through and write it, craft an email to a client with the purpose of making a human connection and making them feel heard. Actually, I condensed down to about 10 minutes. So as an adjunct to a human person, you know, to a person doing a job, I think that's probably the scope initially. That's certainly the sense I'm getting from the people who are talking about AI. And that's how I'll be encouraging my clients. Quite whether it's ready for prime time in terms of customer service, probably not yet. 
Um, we've all had experience of chatbots that just completely misunderstand what we're trying to get to, and we really just want to talk to a human. Um, so, but that's probably the next step. Okay, so I, I think it's a really interesting example, and you can see how that will work. I'm going to try and rephrase my question because I don't think I got it across <laughs> well enough. Mm -hmm. I want to broaden this beyond just AI now. So not, not talking about AI, but using that as the, what you've said as the example. Um, so you talked about uh, organizations that had a lot of systemization, a lot of processes, and that was impacting the user experience. So my question is with or without AI, do we have a problem with organizations uh, appearing and feeling human in their connection to their customers? Yeah, I think that we do. And I think the source of the problem is that um, the sort of senior people in the business ha have generally a very clear idea of what they're trying to do and the kind of experience they want to get give to their customers. The problems in businesses that are anything from you know, micro business, you know, from scale ups and up, in, you know, into corporates, you know, once you get th sort of through a hundred to 150 people, you start to get a level of bureaucracy and politics and silo formation that tends to get in the way of effective connection. And what I tend to find is that businesses are quite inwardly focused. So the marketing team, their job is to gather information about customers and make the connection with customers. Um, and customer service team are the people responsible for actually having those conversations. Um, but they're not necessarily always joined up. So I think it is a problem that comes with size, that comes with scale, and it becomes very difficult to manage. So you have teams working in, in silos, not necessarily, and quite often on, on separate systems. So the customer service team may have one database and the marketing team are working off another database and the two aren't talking to each other. And that's really common because making those connections, you know, they, they, it arises for historical reasons, but making those connections is very expensive and time consuming and difficult. And it often doesn't work. Our big IT projects often fail. So, um, there are institutional problems, I suppose you could call them within organizations. And then the other part of that is that the people responsible for talking to customers day in, day out, because you need a lot of them, they don't tend to be your, um, most highly paid and highly trained role roles. So in customer service, that certainly in this country, I don't know if it's the same in the US uh, or other countries, but certainly in this country, they're not they're not the best paid or best trained um, employees. And I'm not sure I really understand why that is the case. Um, customer service tends to be targeted on the number of calls that you get through, and then a and then a customer service satisfaction rating like Net Promoter Score (NPS). It's very commonly used. Um, so because you can measure thousands of people dealing with thousands, thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers, people do measure. And so I think the wrong things get measured. My sense feeling is that companies need to be measuring the quality of the relationship that somebody forms. And if you empower and equip and train somebody in customer service to solve a problem for a customer first time, they are so much more likely to not need to ring up again, which costs you time and money. Um, they're much more likely to go and recommend you to your friends, to, to their friends. They're more likely to buy from you again. So you get loyalty, you get retention, you get referral in the jargon and a more profitable business as a result. So there are 
organizational challenges that get in the way of people being more human. And quite often, you know, I work with customer, I've worked with customer service teams for probably the last 25 years. And by and large, they're people who really, who really want to do a good job, but quite often they're thwarted by the processes that, that supply, you know, that fund, give them the information or where they've got to hand information onto or who's the next person in the chain. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. It's it's really interesting you say about the wrong things being measured and the importance of building deeper relationships because I, as someone who teaches referrals, I've long been frustrated by net promoter score because it, it it seems to be used as an end in itself and not a means to an end. The amount of times I've been asked if I would be happy to refer an organisation but then not been asked for a referral just baffles me as someone who teaches that topic. Um, but all they want is to be able to turn around and say, look, nine out of ten of our customers would refer us, but they never bother to actually ask them, which to me just seems absolutely ludicrous. Uh, the... the um, the other example for me would be the amount of times that I'm asked at the end of a transaction uh, or a conversation and you know any type of interaction these days, which is another um, bugbear I know for a lot of people, you know, can you, can you score us for how happy you are with this interaction? You know, you can, um, you can walk into a shop and uh, ask for directions and you'll get an email the next day saying, <laughs> you know, were you happy with the interaction? But yeah. if you score it low, you don't get a follow-up. People aren't following up and saying, well, what was wrong? They just are taking the scores on. So what's happened there? What? what how have we gone from zero to 100 on the data we collect, but mm. we're still stuck on zero with what we do with that data? Yeah. It's really interesting what's happened, and I think I think there's something of the, the law of unintended consequences there. So Fred Reichold, who wrote The Ultimate Question, uh, which was the book that um, – detailed the MPS approach, net promoter score approach. Um, he's recently come out with a new book to try and correct the problem. So um, I was working with Eon uh, about 15 years ago when they were rebranding from PowerGen when the German Eon bought the UK business. Um, and I did, I, I worked with them for about eight years. We were looking at the, the brand story, the brand strategy, the tone of voice, training people throughout the business. And net promoter score is, is, was was at the time very hot at uh, Eon and, and in many as it is in many businesses. Um, so it got incredibly popular, and that was the time that I read the ultimate question. Um, fast forward a few years, and and I've and Fred has uh, recently come out with a new book trying to expand on the idea because he feels that his original idea has been misused and it's it's led people down down a path. Now the new I haven't read the new book yet, um, uh, but before the end of the podcast, I will find the name for you. Um, because um, it is very much about being more human in business. He's absolutely talking about humanity in business. And this is, I suppose, one of the problems that um, businesses tend to be run by people who have uh, quite a logical bent. Um, So often chief execs come from finance, so there'll be a CFO before their CEO, or they come from operations, COO before CEO. Um, it's not that usual for them to come from marketing or another discipline that's more kind of human centered. And because of the, the needs of shareholders, uh, and investors, 
um, businesses tend to be quite numbers driven. And so the, the challenge then is at senior team, exec teams, you're, you know, the, the focus is very much about numbers. And I find that focus on numbers can be in conflict with the focus on, on human beings. So you can see how, you know, the MPS score, scoring out of 10, um, is as a shorthand for whether you're making customers happy is great for numbers focused people, but it, it leads to the wrong conclusion sometimes. And that's what I'm trying to find, what trying to fix actually, how do we, how do we help people to recognize within businesses, how their customers feel so that they can make them feel better? How do we tune into the emotion when we're being driven by numbers? And the same goes within the organization. So if we're driven by numbers and targets internally, how does that affect the way, the nature of the relationships that we build? Are we focusing on how our colleagues feel or are we focusing on the output that they deliver? So I think it does lead to alienation and less humanization. Um, yeah. I'm glad we're on the, on, on the same page there. Let, let, let's take it back a, a step because in your previous answer, you talked about businesses with over, over 150 employees, uh, and that's where a lot of the processes and so forth that we were talking about t- seem to kick in. How important do you think the size of the business is in terms of their ability to connect hum- in a human way with their customers or any external or internal, as you say, stakeholders, communicate with humanity? to whomever it might be. How important is the size of business? So a smaller business is more human. Is there uh, a stage at which after a certain amount of growth, a company becomes more human again? Is there a, a, a bitter spot as opposed to a sweet spot where companies lose it entirely? How does that play out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting question. So um, believe it or not, before going into uh, business, um, I uh, studied archaeology. This was in the early 90s, and uh, an Oxford professor of anthropology, uh, Robin Dunbar, published some research in 1992 defining what became known as Dunbar's number, and the number is 150. And uh, Dunbar started by studying evidence of Neolithic, so Stone Age societies, um, or late Stone Age societies, and he noticed something interesting, that when a village got to a scene to get to a certain size, a group would split away and form and start a new village. So you can imagine kind of the youngsters, probably the, you know, the teen, older teenagers and twenties going, we've had enough of these old duffers. We're going to start our own thing. Of course that's happened for time immemorial, but so this number of around 150 seemed to be critical for him. So he delved into what is, what is it about this group size? And the way he defines it is it's the number of loose relationships where we know who everybody is and we know how everybody else relates to each other in the group. Um, beyond that number, the idea is that it then becomes harder to hold that in our heads. And so we become an alienated from those people. Um, he's then taken this number and, and looked at organizations and he steps forward into say the Roman army, which had, um, a repetition of which had maybe a, a unit of eight or 10 people, a platoon of 30 and a company of 120 to 150. And other armies follow the same, uh, the same structure, including the British army today. Um, and so what's interesting about this group size is then he then starts thinking about how this might apply to other organizations. 
Uh, Robin Dunbar has a book, a new book coming out actually that talks about this in some detail. It's coming in the next few months. Um, and so what does this mean for organizations? And I think every everybody who started a business or is leading a business will recognize a time at which a, a size of community at which they no longer knew everybody by their first name. And that's how the director of the, the chief exec of a, a pet insurance company that I've been working with for a few years typified it. He said, um, it was that point where he no longer knew everybody by first name. Things started to get a bit weird. <laughs> and I, so I do think there is a change that goes on in organizations when they go from say hundred to 150 and through that size, it's not a strict number. It's not like, you know, once you're over 150, everything's different, but it's the size at which things become a bit more political. Um, you need more bureaucracy. You need processes in order for teams to work effectively together. And because of that bureaucracy, it means that there are systems in places in place of people and conversations. But also you find that because people don't know each other quite so well, um, they tend to hold on to information. So that's where silos start to form. So I mentioned earlier on about how your marketing brand team may not be on the same page as your people team, as your customer service team. And that's the point at which this starts to happen, where the communication starts to break down. So I'm really interested in what do we what do we do about that? And I, and I think it takes a slightly different style of leadership. Um, you need to be much clearer about where you're heading. You need to be really crystal clear about your strategy, your vision, your purpose, your values. Uh, as a chief exec, that's your prime role, I think. And then you need to be very consistent in the way that you communicate that. And you need to communicate the same story, time in, time at, you know day in, day out, because when people hear slightly different stories, that's when people start to get confused about where they're heading. And if there's any confusion there, you're not, galvan you're, you're not making the best use of their discretionary effort. Um, and people, you know, people do want to work and generally I find want to do a good job, but if they're confused about direction, it's hard for them to do that. Talking about the discretionary effort makes me think about something like the, the 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 McDonald's, the Ray Kroc franchise model. Now, having run a franchise myself, I always I always say that where we didn't get it right was we were too loose in uh, how we controlled the franchise. And if you look at, at Ray Kroc's model for McDonald's, every McDonald's is exactly the same experience. Wherever you go in the world, you know exactly what you're going to expect, expect because everything is laid down step by step. It's processes on steroids. Hmm. Um, how do you, how do you get that balance right where you have the right layers of control as a, as an organization grows? Uh, so that you can maintain a brand, you can maintain a culture, you can maintain an experience that is consistent wherever anyone interacts with that organization. But at the same time, you encourage people to use that discretion, people to, because surely you have to encourage your employees to be human if people's experience of them is of humanity. Yeah, really good question. Um because there's this tension, isn't there, between um, kind of control, it's between having control and not having control um, and empowering and disempowering people. So I guess what I'm saying is, how do you have enough control without disempowering people, without taking people's mm -hmm. ability to choose? 
um, because they don't get people don't give of their best if they don't have some ability to bring their own skills and personality to to bear. So, yeah, really good question. Um, there was another author who tried to solve this, um, Michael Gerber in the E Myth Revisited, yeah, uh, which one of the earlier business books that I read, yeah. and he explains it quite well. But he he missed, I think, something that that I tend to focus on now. But what the, what he really got right was, I think, to um, develop systems and processes. And so he starts from being a very small business and how you get larger. And I can remember him talking about how, you know, as a founder, once you've nailed your bookkeeping system, for example, um, the task is to document it, to write the process. And then when you are able to afford it, you can recruit somebody into that role and you've documented the process. So then the next step is to train that person to deliver that process. And um, then hopefully you are automating something, you, you know, you're delegating effectively um, and giving that role to somebody else. So each element of the business, every, each process in the business, you can document and train people to adopt so that you free your time up as a founder. And I think whenever you're establishing a new team or establishing a business, you're trying to do that. You're trying, you know, in order to scale. Um, so how do you do that without with leaving people some freedom? And I think that comes from having clear purpose. I don't remember whether Michael Gerber talks about this, but my focus is very much on, on the strategy. So how do you articulate the direction that you're heading in? So what is your purpose in the world? What's your mission? What are you setting out to do? Uh, what do you believe in? What are your values? What are your behaviors? And all of those things can feel like you're trying to construct some kind of cult, but I, I don't find that's the case. Um, invariably when I'm, I go into a business where there isn't that direction, I, when I talk to teams, they feel a little bit rudderless. They don't know what is expected of them. It's not been spelled. So because it's not been written down and spelt out, they're actually not quite clear on what they, on, on what's the right behavior and what's not. So, uh, I think guidelines actually are extremely useful and, if we think about language in particular, which is something that I've specialized in over the last 20 years, um, you know, when I first got into language, I did worry and I did my first tone of voice project at Boots and I worried that people would feel it was too prescriptive and telling them how to write. And the challenge with the way that we use language is it's part of our professional persona. It's like putting a suit on to go to work or a t-shirt, whatever. So we use language in a way to convey our professional persona part of our personality so it's very a very difficult thing to, to change and so I worry that people wouldn't change and wouldn't want to adopt a tone of voice that you're trying to encourage um, but actually I found the opposite I found that if you give just enough guideline guidance but not too much so a small number of techniques that give you um, direction so for example if you are let's say we're in financial services financial services tends to have the technical the technical culture underlying financial services is um the is the kind of culture of the actuary you know the the statistician and so the language of the actuary come tends to come through and that can have a sort of a formality to it there's also quite a lot of compliance and legal language that comes through so in order to speak to customers consumers uh we probably want a bit more warmth because that actuarial or legalistic language can be uh can be quite offensive actually at times so how do we show the customer customers that were on their side 
we might want to be warmer, and then we can find ways in language to be warmer. Well, if I was trained as an actuary or if I've li- worked in financial services all of my life, I might not know how to do that. But if if you can tell me, uh, use shorter sentences and use contractions like aisle and wheel and yule, that that will give you touches of warmth. I now know, ah, if I can use those things and I actually feel empowered. So as long as your direction is gives just enough to give people the clues, but doesn't tell them how to do it all the time, I find that people are excited about it rather than crushed by it. Yeah, I, I like that because I, you made me think about when I used to um, work in direct sales, cold calling, and you'd be given a script. Just before we, we got on this call, I had a phone call. And, I, you know, as soon as someone says, hello, it, am I speaking to Andy Lapata? How are it. you today? I put the phone down because I know it's a script. And, and, you know, we used to have these scripts that would be several paragraphs long before you'd let the other person speak. I couldn't use them. And we were told you'd have, you have to use a script. I never did because I, it didn't allow me to have that human connection of hearing the other person's voice of having a conversation. So that show them how to, but don't tell them what to, I think is a really important differentiation there. I bet you're a better salesman as a result. Yeah, I was still rubbish, but I was a lot better than I was before. <laughs> Probably a similar experience to me in my early career as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had my moments. Let's put it yeah. uh, put it that way. Yeah. When when you prescribe to the degree that my old sales organisations did, and some companies that are really heavy on process do, you know, go back to the McDonald's example. How are you today? Was a brilliant innovation when it was um, uh, when it was introduced, but then it became a running joke you know, and you knew that no one meant it. So when you get that balance right, and instead of prescribing, you're showing, does that create more of an emotional connection? And is that what's lacking when we lose the humanity in the way that we connect with our customers? And, and, And as I say, again, not just customers, but stakeholders internally and externally. It is absolutely. And it's, um, it's a tricky balance to get right, but there is an approach that um, I find strangely a lot of people haven't heard about, but can help. And it's called appreciative inquiry. And it's approach to change that starts by looking at what's already working. And I find it's fantastically powerful in organizations. So if we take our specific example, let's say we want to give guidelines for how we want people to sound on the phone, for example, um, what language that they use, what, what's the phraseology, what kind of words. Um, one way we can use this uh, appreciative inquiry is to explore times that the organization is at its best, the people in the organization, what they're like at their very best. So in order to define that language, that tone of voice in the first place, if we start from hearing stories about times that they're at their best, we hear genuinely the behavior that they're using day to day. What that enables us to do is to focus on the behavior that we want to see and that is already there so it's actually relatively easy to, to adopt because it already already exists. You're not telling people to do things terribly differently. Um, uh, that gives them much uh, people a much more confident place to start from. And then when we've dis- defined, so we can use this to define the strategy. Um, but then we can invite people to use the same process, this appreciative process of interviewing each other and telling stories of times that they've been at their best, to think about as a team how they can adopt new behaviors. 
So if we want to see more consistent behaviors over over the country, over multiple countries, you know, if you've got thousands of people over the world, it can be quite hard to control. So we have to give some freedom. But if we start from what's already working and get people telling stories of times they've been at their best, we find I find that that's incredibly empowering and it encourages people to adopt the right skills. And quite often you don't even need to tell them what to do. I had a, uh, a project a few years ago. I was working for Seven Trent Water, one of the water authorities, the privatized water businesses in the UK. And um, the problem that they came to me with was that they were getting too many complaints that were being escalated up to chief exec. So there was something going wrong in the complaints process and they wanted to solve this. They had 60 people in the senior, in the, in the sort of the chief exec complaints team, um, in, in the senior customer service team. So very deeply experienced team and they knew how to do the job right. But again, a very large organization where the systems and processes can get in the way of being yourself and doing the right thing. So I ran an, a, a couple of appreciative inquiry workshops with this team. The output that they wanted actually was uh, some guidance on working on the phone and working in writing so that they would show a human connection and therefore reduce the likelihood of complaints, make customers feel more comfortable, make them feel looked after. And um, I think they imagined that we would come out with some tone of voice guidance. And the amazing thing was that we didn't need it in the end. So we had 60 people workshopping, exploring stories of times they've been at their best, looking at the common themes that come out of those things, the thing that they valued from those experiences. And we discovered that all of those best past experiences were times of a personal connection, times of good communication, where they'd worked effectively as a team, where they felt that their colleagues had had their back. These stories that people tell are almost never times when they did things completely on their own. They are team, mutual, collegiate experiences. And so when we recognize these, these experiences, people go, we know how to do this. We've already got it. We just need to focus on it and do it, do more of it. So that's, that's the way I help to get through, you know, from strategy through to implementation through an organization. Uh, that that outcome that you've just uh, illustrated there is exactly, uh, you know, I think what comes through on so many of these conversations that we have on the Connected Leadership Podcast, so much of the work that I do, it, it, it's things that people do know and, and they have within themselves or within the team. Um, and it's, it's sometimes or often a lack of focus and clarity um, rather than an inability or lack of skill set. And that goes back to too much focus on the numbers, too much focus on the processes. And I am a believer in processes, but too much focus on them without understanding what we're trying to achieve mm. um, will hold us back. And maybe it will say, be the same whether it's uh, delivered by humans or delivered by bots. Um, it, it's really understanding what your objectives are that drives your communication. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And uh, interestingly, I don't know if it's there's something about the algorithm at the moment. I'm getting articles about consultants, management consultants, and the downsides of government being overrun by consultants. Um, the idea that you can parachute in very bright, highly educated people who don't necessarily have the specific expertise but can help transform and bring management thinking into organizations. Um, I have a completely different approach. My 
thinking is that the answer is always within the organization. It's, it's almost always within the people. That doesn't mean sometimes that we, we do need to bring innovation in, but actually quite often, I think we just need to unlock innovation from within. It's already there. Your people have the knowledge. Your people on the ground know how to do, know what needs to be done. They're talking to customers. They're talking to clients. They know what needs to be done and they just need to be unleashed. So I do think the answers tend to be internal. Um, we tend to look externally for answers and, and I'm an absolute sucker for that. I'm, I'm, I have a, a thirst for learning and, and reading and absorbing new stuff. But interestingly, as I passed 50 last year, I'm starting to realize I'm reading the same thing time, time and again, and I'm <laughs> starting to wonder whether I've kind of, I've read quite a lot of it already and it's harder to pick out the genuinely new thinking. I think the answer is within us, within our organizations yeah. and with our people, within our people. Yeah. Uh, recently, or, or on an ongoing basis, I've, I'm involved at the moment with writing my next book, which is the, the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Uh, and, and the reason I say recently is actually in the last few days as we record this, but not in the last few days as it comes out, uh, we've been w working on the chapter of the difference between mentoring and coaching. And I had a conversation with the chairman of the Association of Business Mentors where he threw consultancy into the mix um, and made the point that consultancy is the pure telling, whereas coaching is the pure questioning and helping people find the answers within themselves and mentoring hovers somewhere in between. And, and I think that what you've just said reflects that conversation as well. Well, um, seven or eight years ago, I trained as a coach and I've always taken a coaching style approach. Um, and I, I suppose we should define what we're talking about, shouldn't we? I mean, like the way I think about co pure coaching is asking questions that help somebody yeah. come to a conclusion for themselves. Yes. And the idea behind that is that if we come up with answers for ourselves, we're much more likely to take action on what we've found. When somebody yeah. tells us what we should do, we tend to resist it. Think about kids. <laughs> <laughs> and and oh, just to add to that, Simon's, uh, Simon Fordham from ABM, wow. his inverse of that is consultancy is telling them. Yeah. So my style of consultancy is actually much more of a coaching yeah. approach. And when I trained as a coach, that's interestingly, I feel like I became a much more effective consultant. So it's not like the big four style of consultancy going in and assuming a level of knowledge and expertise i actually go in knowing nothing about somebody's business and knowing that i will never know as much about their business as they do and i can't possibly um so how can i possibly just hand them an answer um i think effective consultancy that makes change effective change and is and therefore value for money and achieves an outcome um starts from building on the resources that already exist within an organization and and adding to them and helping them to transform uh rather than parachuting in something completely different so i think a coaching i i find a coaching approach much more powerful if i can help my clients think i've often thought this i remember as far back as 15 16 years ago working with eon they, they were so busy we're so busy in businesses we don't have time to think often and, and I think that's how consultants and agencies are often, you know, leaned on, um, as, as people who are there, who can take the space and time to think through a problem properly and develop, yeah. develop an approach, develop strategy. 
um, because we're just so busy. So yeah, but a, but a coaching approach helps that you know whatever we come up with to be accepted. Uh, and and tying that back into the theme of the, the, the conversation, if people, if organisations, if leaders who have brought consultants in have more of a conversation with them rather than just being told what to do, that's a more human experience, isn't it? It's a more connected experience. And, and surely one of the biggest frustrations for people who don't feel like the organisations they're dealing with are dealing with them in that connected, humane way is because well, they're being told what to think and what to do and not being asked. And, and I, think, I think this is a fundamental problem in, in leadership, actually. So um, I think it's human nature. We want to be heard. We, ne- we have a need to be heard. We need to feel heard and appreciated by the people around us. And I know that command and control leadership is, is on the wane. It's not disappeared completely, but it's, you know, that's, it's softened. But I don't. I think we're a long way from true coaching cultures, and I have a vision for all business actually being led through coaching. I had a conversation recently with a, a one of the corporate travel, the, the large uh, global corporate travel booking companies, uh, BCD Travel. Um, the uh, one of their senior vice presidents, who I was a client, who was one of my clients a few years ago. Um, I interviewed him for my forthcoming book, and he told me one of the problems that he's got at the moment is as a gen xer so he's i guess he is approaching middle 50s he's recruiting younger millennials and gen wires and he's finding that the their needs are quite different from when you and i entered the, yeah. the job market um and they can be quite demanding sometimes they they join the company and they're expecting they're sort of expecting a development plan immediately and they're expecting a, a promotion and a pay rise in within six, after six months. Um, when you and I, um, enter the job market, we expected to have to work for that (laughs) and we we might get rewarded if we, you know, if we did, if we got things right. Um, but my advice to, to this, uh, this old client was that if, if he adopted a coaching approach, could he Put the pass the question back to his employees and say, okay, so how would you like to develop? What, where, how, how do you see your career? De- you know, I can give guidance and I can give suggestions, but it's up to you where you want your career to go. I'm just here to support you. So, a coaching approach to that question um, would be to not take on the responsibility of the development plan, but saying, you look up, you come up with a development plan. We can talk about it. I'll coach you through it. I can show you, I can, you know, open your eyes to opportunities. And I can support you to develop that. And we can talk about coaching and training that can help you get there. But as an individual, as an, em- as an employee, it's your responsibility to, to take that on and, and to develop it. And that's more of a coaching approach, helping them to come up with the answer for themselves, because then they're going to own the answer. They're going to be, they're going to own the plan and they're going to feel ownership of the results that will lead to the promotion and the pay rise. So I would like to see more of a coaching style culture in all organizations and it almost becomes a bottom-up where you know the 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 pyramid is flipped upside down where the leadership's job is actually to coach their people and the more effectively they coach the people the better you know the better the people are at at delivering the work and looking after customers and 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 that uh it's a nice point to close on it it reminds me of a conversation last year i can't remember exactly i think it was it was one of our podcasts but which one has gone out of my my mind for the moment but it was basically on the 
you know, the premise was if you treat people right within the organization, they then treat people the right way who are outside the organization uh, and, and across. It's very hard to show empathy for customers when your leaders are not sh- sh- giving you empathy. You yeah. need to feel safe. You need to feel looked after. You need to feel supported in order to give your best to customers because customer service is emotionally draining. It's a tough job. So you, you need to look after you need to look after those people so they look after your customers. Absolutely. Great stuff. Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. It's been absolute absolute pleasure. Thank you, Andy. So thanks to Ben for joining me. That was a, a really good note to finish on because it, it might have felt for a moment that we were veering off topic, but I think all of this stuff is, is linked so closely. Um, how we treat each other within an organisation, as we explored in that recent podcast, um, does impact how we then treat other people within the role. Um, but we do need to look at whether processes, whether tools designed to measure numbers are getting in the way of uh, the experience that other people have of doing business with us rather than actually supporting it and actually asking the question why are we why do we have these processes why are we putting these things in place and going back to where we began the conversation is AI going to take us down that path further or is it going to be able to learn and produce the humanity that maybe some organizations currently lack and I'm sure uh, everyone listening to this can, can name a few organizations they feel might benefit from AI because they can't uh, be any less human than they are at the moment. Uh, so thanks to Ben for joining me. If you've enjoyed this, please share it. Please rate it and review it on the podcast channel of your choice. And whatever you do, join me again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe. Tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.